Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Marco Azzarelli and Marnie Azzarelli, authors of Labor Unrest in Scranton. Our guests are Margot Azzarelli and Marnie Azzarelli, and they are the authors of this book, Labor Unrest in Scranton. Margot, we'll start with you. Why'd you write the book? Well, we write, I rewrote the book to preserve the history. That's what we do. What gets you interested in it? Uh, labor history, I don't know. I've been interested in that for about the last decade, and I've been researching um, the riots for a long time. I, I can't really say one specific thing that gets me interested in it, but I've always been a history buff. Are you a native of Scranton? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, Margot, uh, Marnie, uh, how'd you get interested in this project? Well, mostly with because my mother was interested in it and she hasn't stopped talking about the riots for the past decade. <laughs> and so I kind of, I, I grew up pretty much throughout my teenage years listening to about the history of Scranton and it just kind of got me interested in wanting to know more and more about where I live. And you're a docent, it says in the book? Mm-hmm. Doing what? I'm basically a tour guide at the Lackawanna Historical Society and uh, I just bring people through the house and show them the different exhibits there. <laughs> well, for people who've never been to Scranton, first of all, what, where is it? How big is it? What's, what's going on there? Well, um, Scranton, I'm not really good with directions. <laughs> We're northeastern PA. North. Um, Scranton Wilkesbury area, Lackawanna County. Um, it was known at one time as the anthracite capital of the world. Uh, now we don't have one basic industry, it's just a plethora of people. Um, we have about, what's our population? It's about over 100,000 so. around there. Yeah. And you mentioned the riots. Why don't we just get right into it? What set the stage for the riots? Well, the riots, you asked me one of the reasons that fascinates me. It's because it happened on Lackawanna Avenue in Washington at the intersection. And it's a corner that people walk every day. It's like the main corner of downtown Scranton. So uh, nobody had really, the majority of people never knew that a riot actually happened there. Yeah, 1877. Um, that was a really violent year for labor. Um, it began with 1873, the panic and depression, um, when Jay Cook, he went bankrupt, and he was one of the biggest bankers at that time, and he financed many of the railroads, and railroads were growing, and he overextended himself. So when he went bankrupt, a lot of other uh, banks felt the domino effect of it. So uh, being a capitalist, instead of taking the brunt of it, unfortunately the workers kind of took the financial brunt of it and their hours got cut and their pay was getting cut 10%. I mean, Pennsylvania Railroad cut the pay in 1877 twice in one year. I mean, they were making so little, $27 a month, if that, and it was getting cut more and more. So um, after the, that last pay cut in 1877, um, in uh, June, they decided they were going to walk out. So um, July 16th, the, the trainsmen in the B&H, Baltimore and Ohio uh, Railroad, they just stopped. And all of the railroads except for one blockaded, were blockaded. They just stopped running. Oh, it wasn't just the Pennsylvania Railroad? No. It started with the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. So um, that was the beginning of it. And with the railroads, once they stopped, you couldn't ship any other things, you know, like iron and the coal, because you needed the railroads to get from point A to point B. So that's how the coal miners also went on strike eventually by the end of August, or by the end of July, I'm sorry. Well, 1877, how organized were unions? Not very. Not very much no, at all. That's what they were trying to, and not, not, it was kind of the prelude. I mean, mm -hmm. they had done several attempts 
um, to unionize, but they were stopped at, you know, at every attempt that they were doing. They had the Knights of Labor. It was just the beginning. And uh, they had the workmen. The AFL, was that a going then? It was to, American yeah, Federation of Labor? Samuel Gompers. Mm -hmm. That was more the 80s. Um, but you had the Workmen's Benevolence mm -hmm. Association. And they weren't making any headway. The capitalists were too... Uh, powerful. Powerful. Yeah. You know? Was there somebody who said, okay, we're going on strike? Or did they take a vote? Or how did it... I How think they happen? just all got disgusted with the, the loss of wages and the loss of time. I mean, some were working only three days a week. And, and like I said, uh, similar to today, uh, even though they were taking pay cuts, the capitalists and their workers were they're getting dividends and hikes in their dividends. So kind of, you know, <laughs> things history repeats itself, oh. as, as they say. The, the working man usually gets it, and woman. So, <laughs> you know, so they just united and they said that was it. They were just going to stop. So they walked off the job and then what yeah. happened? Well, then... Pardon the expression, all hell broke loose, actually, and nothing, nobody could go anywhere. They didn't really bother. The passenger trains were still able to go up until the end of July. Um, but riots broke out everywhere. Here in Altoona, Pittsburgh was the worst, mm -hmm. um, in Scranton, of course. Um, so it, it was a lot of unlawfulness throughout that whole month. You're chapter about the riot is called Bloody August 1st. Yes. What happened on August 1st? That was the, when the riot occurred in Scranton. Um, the Brotherhood, the trainsmen went back to work on the 31st of July. They didn't get anything. They they were kind of bullied, you know, by, by the upper-ups, that if they agreed to go back to work, nothing would happen to them. They would keep their job. They weren't going to get the, rate, the wage increase. Well, the coal miners, they weren't too happy about that. So in Scranton, uh, the mayor, Mayor McCune, had thought he had convinced the coal miners that they would go back to work the next day as well. And um, a meeting was set. The officials of the coal miners was set for the Roundwoods, which is a section in Scranton, um, in West Scranton. And that's where the, most of the meetings were held between the miners' committee and the miners'. Um, somehow between that night and August 1st, the morning of August 1st, somebody changed the meeting spot to over by the silk mills. And so that's where everyone went, except for the, the uh, committee of miners. Other people gathered around the silk mills August 1st. Uh, there was a lot of unfamiliar faces in town because along with the riots and in various places, strangers kind of turned up and wanted to start trouble and things like that. Um, so that was a pretty heated meeting that went on for a couple of hours. And it was a hot day. It was like 99 degrees at 10 a.m. in the morning. And um, somebody came forward. They never knew who it was with a letter from W.W. Scranton who was superintendent of the Lackawanna Iron and Coal Company. And of course, that's who Scranton's named after his family. And it was a very negative letter saying he would have them work for 45 cents a day. Yeah, I wanted or, to I yeah. Would read this from your book. The contents of the letter claimed that he would cut wages of the working men down to 35 cents okay. a day and make them work even if it put his body under a comb pile. Yes, <laughs> yes. and. Nobody ever knew if that was a real letter or not, which most people assumed it wasn't. But there was just enough people there who were already agitated. It was just like I have in there, the perfect recipe for a riot. Uh, you know, they, they just decided that was it. You know, the, they felt betrayed by the trainsmen. They went back to work, and they, want, they didn't want to do the same thing. So they took off in different directions heading towards town, which is Lackawanna Avenue, was considered the heart of the city. Um, and they went to the furnaces, and uh, they were pulling people out of work. And, and so they claimed, because there's a lot of different interpretations, there's a lot of different um, uh, accounts of exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. So how did the fighting start? Do you want me to continue? No, you continue. Okay. <laughs> you know this better than me. <laughs> well, the fighting started once they hit the, the intersection of Lackawanna and um, Washington. Um, but before we get to that, Mayor McCune um, 
who was in his office that whole month, he, he never left, he wanted to have a special police force just in case because he had heard of all of the riots and he was afraid the same thing was going to happen here. Well, the council vetoed that. They didn't want a special police force of, of, of businessmen. He, he felt that was going to encourage uh, violence if, if they did something. Well, the people it themselves, the businessmen themselves, felt they needed some type of protection for the city. So they did form, on their own accord, uh, and it was called the Scranton Citizen Corps. And it was about 116 members of the Scranton Citizen Corps. Were they like vigilantes, or no, were they authorized they by were, the city? They, well, they had the backing from the mayor, not the council. Uh, but they were just businessmen, businessmen, young men that were in college, one, you know, law students, things like that that were there. A lot, unfortunately, a lot of people did get stuck out of town. We were only down to like 11 policemen because they were sent to uh, help with the other riots and they couldn't get back in once all of the trains were stopped. So uh, a lot of people were stuck out of the city. Um, so that's why they needed more men to defend it. And they were drilling. I mean, they did drills at night what people didn't know they were doing. They were learning from a lot of the old Civil War veterans were teaching them how to march and use the guns that they gathered, uh, just in case. Well, they were caught off guard because they thought with the trainsmen going back to work, they were okay. Well, that wasn't the case so much. So uh, Mayor McCune was alerted that there was a crowd, they say between 3,000 and 5,000, coming up. It's a small area, so you could see it mm -hmm. coming up the hill towards the city, the downtown. Um, so he leaves the office by himself because now everybody's scattered that was in the citizen corps um, because they thought everything was pretty cool. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know? And he walks down himself to that intersection. And a few of the citizen corps that were in, available did gather and some of W.W. Scranton's uh, Iron Police. There was 24 of them and 25 of the Citizen Corps. And they were ready to defend the city. Um, so they kind of clashed in the middle of the intersection. It was just Mayor McCune and a priest that he picked up along the way for support, Father Dunn. And he asked them to cease and desist. But that's not how it, they wouldn't listen. So they said saw a man in a black duster, that's how they describe him, who later is found out to be Patrick... Um, Patrick... Lane? Yes. Um, came forward, and he wanted to know who he was. He didn't know he was the mayor, I guess. And um, he's the one they supposedly started the problem with getting the people all anxious to um, fight. And when he came upon the mayor... Um, the mayor started talking to him and then he punched the mayor in the mouth and knocked him down, broke his jaw, and the priest went down with them. So that was kind of when the clash began. You, you quote the mayor as saying, let's see, uh, members of the Citizens Corps gathered, uh, Mr. Scranton made a speech advising the men to shoot low and, and shoot sh to kill if they shot, shot at all. all. Mm -hmm. And then at some point you say the mayor says, Fire. Which, Fire. See, I can't understand that. It's his jaw. jaw is broken. I don't know how oh, he was yeah. able to speak. So as I said, these accounts are kind of loosey, you know, goosey there. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. But actually, I take most of the riots from uh, Samuel Logan's book uh, that was written only 10 years after it. So that was the closest thing written to the mm -hmm. actual account. So Were there newspaper accounts? Yes, there was newspaper accounts. What do they read like? Pretty much close to... Um, Reverend Logan's, um, some, there's some, you know, inaccuracies in it as always. And, of course, the paper was for the capitalists at the time. It was still so biased at that It was point. also, they were also accused of inciting a riot, kind of playing one side against the other, you know, of course. Was the mayor sympathetic to one side or the other? He was trying, he was trying to defend the city and end it peacefully. I think he was. I mean, nobody knows what's in a man's heart, truly, you know, so I can't say for sure. But I, I don't think he, he was trying to be for both sides. He was trying to see both sides. But I, I think his job was mainly to keep the city at peace and <laughs> from destruction, from Pittsburgh. I mean, they had so much destruction. It was unbelievable. Oh, they had riots in other cities, yes. too? Yes. Uh, Pittsburgh being the, I mean, they had over $6 million worth of damage. Um, 
for as much damage, 20-some 20, 20 people were killed, 26 people were only killed, considering the damage. They burned everything down. and They, they claim it took the 1930s to pay off that, all the damage. So. How many people were killed in the Scranton riot? Four that I can trace. There could be more. Some say six. Some say six, some say but they three, all, but it they was... can't name them. So. Yeah, it was definitely four that I can trace so far. And I still haven't given up because I still research it. <laughs> did, did the people scatter then, or did the yes. fighting continue? Within three minutes of the first fi shot fired, the people all scattered. So they don't know how many more could have died because if they admitted they were there, then they were part of the mob mm -hmm. and they could be arrested. So, yeah. Nobody in the Citizen Corps was killed. Uh, two were wounded, but none more, you know, the, none well, were that's killed. that's because the, the miners, they only had cudgels and they, yeah, things they like that. I don't think they, they had, had guns. I don't think they had guns either, but one can't be sure. Yeah. Did the strike end then? No. Mm -mm. The strike went on until October. Unfortunately, they didn't win. They went back to work after that, too. But uh, What was it like being on strike then? Well, being the way things were, I mean, I can only imagine how terrible it was. You know, I mean, they barely had I enough. Say, the, the miners barely had, had any money, money to begin with. Yeah, I mean, like And now I they said, had nothing coming in. <laughs> they made $27 a month, if that. Yeah. Most of that had to pay for their housing from the uh, company, company store. They had to buy their own goods from the company store. Yeah, they buy their own tools from tools. the company store. Uh, they didn't really have much left over. Probably whatever they could grow in their garden. I mean, they rarely ate meat, you know? Uh, uh, that later, was a rarity. Later on, different unions would try to help, but that's still like a mm -hmm. bare, sub, like, barely surviving. Mm -hmm. So it's called the Great Railroad Strike, but uh, how many coal miners were involved? Um, in our city, there was a couple of thousand, yeah. I would say. Yeah, in our city. Because all sure those industries were so tied all up the, yeah, with each other. Yeah, they were all tied together. The, the iron, and like I said, with the shipping, without the railroads, they couldn't ship anything. So mm -hmm. it kind of, did, like the domino effect, it affected everyone. So how, how was it settled? Did the miners just go back to work? Did they get anything out of it? No. No. The New York Times said, even though the miners lost, they call it a battle drawn, because it was the first time in history that... Uh, the poor conditions that the miners had to deal with, the working conditions and the wages, was known nationally. It actually got national attention. That was the first time. So even though they didn't win anything other than getting their jobs back, they did have somewhat of a win, the knowledge of what was going on. Were the Pinkertons involved in this? Um, they would become later on. W.W. Uh, Scranton hired them because he thought people were trying to kill him. Uh, so they hired the Pinkerton. I wonder why. Yeah, but the Iron and Coal Police, they were involved with the, the Citizen Corps um, the day that they shot. And a lot of people accused W.W. Scranton and the men for shooting hastily. So they, did get, they brought, got brought up on uh, charges, murder charges. Oh, they did? Mm -hmm. Oh. They weren't, of course, they were able to, to post bail because they were all rich and uh, it took what 45 minutes they were found not guilty because nobody showed up on the prosecutions on the defense side so yeah. what do you know about W.W. W. Scranton and do you know how many generations he is removed from say Governor Scranton oh, let's see there's um, possibly two I think I can't because be they're sure. all named William Scranton yeah, right so right. Yeah. his there's father William was William Joseph Walker. His father was Joseph, yeah, and then William Warren. He was William Walker, mm -hmm. so possibly two. And what was his business? He was superintendent of uh, the Lackawanna Iron and Coal Company, which was started by the Scranton brothers, um, the Scranton Iron Furnaces. That's what it's known as. So uh, the, the city was named after the previous generation? Yeah, his father and uh, Selden and George. Mm -hmm. that, that would be his uncles, mm -hmm. correct? So how did you get involved in this project? Well, th mostly through my, my parents are living historians. We've all been kind of doing research and uh, presenting programs since I was about 12. So I've always been kind of just entrenched in that, the Scranton history. So when she asked me if, we, if she wanted to do a labor book with her, I'm like, well, sure. <laughs> and she's done how many books before this one? Five? And I've helped scan pictures and do things like that, but I never got a chance to to help write one of them. So this was a big experience for me. <laughs> How did you divide up the work? She t Well, of course, she took all of 1877 because she knows it, like, by heart. And I focused mainly on uh, the strike of 1902. 
1877, what was the life of a miner like then? You can well, I did that, that chapter too. <laughs> she did do the life of the miner. Um, like we said before, it's not like how many, how much did you say? $27 a month, a dollar a week, maybe, mm -hmm. possibly. Um, where the coal miners lived, uh, most of them were immigrants from, in the beginning, Wales and Ireland, and then later on, more European countries like Poland and Italians. That was more of the 1880s. Um, but during that time, everything they owned was basically owned by the company. They lived in a company town. They lived in a company house. They went to the company store. Even the church was owned by the company. So their whole lives were just tied into paying back the debt that they usually owed the company from getting their tools and what they needed to work in the company store. Not to mention working for uh, how long? 12 hours? Oh, yeah, you 12, 12 hours a day. Deep, because this is deep vein mining, not strip mining. So it's deep into the ground with like, I think I'd get claustrophobic that, at that point because it's just how many tons of dirt and soil above them. And they would stay there all day long, eat lunch down there, and come up at night. And that was basically their day. And then we saw the sun on Sundays. They only saw the sun on Sundays. Did any miners like their jobs, or did they just see it as a living torture? I wouldn't go, I don't know if I would say it was a living torture. Again, you don't know exactly. It, it differs from person to person. But um, in the company towns, a, a lot of the same ethnicities lived together. So all the Germans lived with the Germans, all the Irish lived with the Irish, all the Welsh lived with the Welsh. So there was, they still did all their traditional holidays, traditional festivals, uh, and they kept up the camaraderie, even deep in the mines, even going so far as to other miners from of different ethnicities talking to other miners. They would just tell each other stories as well as they could in whatever language they could. Did the different ethnicities get along? It depended, I think. Not all the time. Not no. all the time. Was there a hierarchy where sort of one ethnic group was higher up the ladder and other? I would say the Welsh, because the they were they came over from Wales as skilled miners because mm. they worked in the coal mines mm -hmm. in their own country, and the Irish were the more neighbors. unskilled. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. they were. The Welsh were usually more of the bosses over the Irish at some points. Mm -hmm. And I see your last name is Azarelli. Were there any Italians there at the time? In the 1890s, the Italians Yeah, 80s were, and 90s, and yeah. they were treated awfully. Yeah. What, what was the role of a, the, the wife of a miner? Oh, Doing coal. everything with the house, including keeping the coal dust out at all times. Mm -hmm. They would make everything. They would make the curtains, the bed. If they, Hopefully they had a metal frame. If not, it was just on the ground. They would make the rugs in the house, they would make all the food, they would take care of the garden, take care of if they had any like little bits of livestock, like a goat or any pigs or anything they had. Uh, they would take care of the shopping, they would take care of pretty much everything, including family, if they had children, which was, they of course, of yeah, they usually had a lot of children. They took care of the children until they could go off and work. When did the kids start working? Ooh, some youngest five or six, Seven. five or six. Yeah. Usually. Those well, the that's boys. The boys. Yeah, the boys. Mm -hmm. What would a five or six-year-old boy do in the mines? Uh, they would be a door boy or a nipper, where they would have to hold the door open for, so the miners can go through different parts of the, the vein. And they had to stay awake and stay alert because the mules would come through and they won't yeah, stop. So they had to open, they had to keep that door open. and. Unfortunately, there was a lot of accidents where if they yeah. fell asleep and the door opened, mm. yeah, it wasn't good. Uh, what would five or six-year-old girls do? Well, uh, they didn't really work. They would work in the silk mills, but later on. Not that, yeah, not I don't think it was that young. I think it may be around nine or ten, ten they would yeah. start working in the silk, silk mills, mills as bobbin girls and weavers and keep going through that. Mm -hmm. Silk mills were real big at the time? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where'd they get the silk? Usually in New Jersey, Patterson, New Jersey. Yeah. So what would they do at the mills? You could answer that one. This is a little off topic. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't looked at this in a long time. Uh, you played a silk mill girl. I know I played a silk mill girl. <laughs> but they were to be in charge of uh, getting the bobbins filled with thread or making garments later on, I think. When, when did you girl. play a silk mill girl? What, what was that? Oh, God. Her, that was your first? Was well, that the first no, thing I your did? Your Hitler there? youth was your first I, thing. Okay, we don't have to go about the Hitler time I played a Hitler youth. Um, <laughs> 
You but mentioned I, in the back of the book a theatrical production that, that uh, you we, had Yeah, we did a play in uh, 2007. Yep. We did uh, the riots. We did 1877 riots on Lackawanna Avenue. Well, we tried to do the riots, but we had mostly girls. Uh, so, so it was girls dressed up as coal miners trying yeah. to be writers. Mm -hmm. And we actually did it at the Iron Furnaces, which was nice. Mm -hmm. So we had, we had the great background, great setting. So mm -hmm. we, had, we had a nice turnout. It was very nice. And it was the first time that people in the area actually learned about the riots that occurred there. So, If you go to that intersection today, what do you see? You a sign. sign. <laughs> the PHMC. Yeah, we nominated the sign. So in 2008, they, they approved it, and uh, we now have a, a sign for the coal. And it's also uh, a pokey stop. And labor is <laughs> strike. Well, I'm sure people love that. Um, so, yeah, so it's right there. So did things settle down? Everyone went back to work? Everybody was content after that? No, I wouldn't say content. There was still off and on riots throughout the end of the um, 19th century. And, and the, the unions were having a difficult time trying to gain any footing in the anthracite. Because mm -hmm. a lot of the unions worked for the bituminous coal mining, like that's in Illinois, and I forget where else. I Illinois, know. Arkansas, I think. Yeah. In those areas, but it's, it's a different type of dynamic with the anthracite coal, because that was more in demand at that time. So product had to keep getting pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed out. For people who don't know, what's the difference between anthracite and bituminous? Why is one different than the other? Bituminous, soft coal. Yeah, bituminous is a softer, uh, dusty coal. Like, it, it's very ashy coal. Um, anthracite's the cleaner burning coal. Yeah, it's harder. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's harder. Well, when the, the railroad strike happened in the anthracite mines, that, that shut down the bituminous mines also? Um, I don't believe so. I don't think so. No. No. I think anthracite was still more predominantly used mm -hmm. at that time. So um, let's go to the uh, the 1902. Was mm -hmm. that the other strike? And that's your your chapter. Yes. Set, <laughs> set the stage. Well, it really started in, in 1900. Uh, at the time, John Mitchell was the uh, president of the UMWA, the United Mine Workers of America, and. All the miners wanted at the time was a 10% wage increase and for the union to be recognized as a union by the coal operators, which they adamantly refused to do. Uh, and at that time, William McKinley was uh, trying to be reelected. Uh, so, president. yeah, the president, what president William McKinley trying to be reelected? And he just, he didn't want a strike to happen because he saw what was going to happen. He knew there was going to be a strike and there was a bit of a strike for about six weeks or so um, and at that time he just he didn't want there to be an issue where he either had to take either side and he didn't want to look like the bad guy and he wanted to win he wanted to win, <laughs> basically he wanted to win re-election so he sent out Senator Hanna to and with JP Morgan who put pressure on the coal operators to concede so there was a 10% wage increase at that time uh, and the strike ended but Throughout 1900 to 1902, the union still wasn't recognized, and the coal operators didn't really care about the concession they made. They didn't. They saw like they were humiliated that the coal miners got their way, so they decided not to keep the contract sound, and they completely like they went back to the regular wages. They didn't care. They still treated the coal miners as they treated them before, and. Uh, Johnny Mitchell didn't want to have another strike in 1902. He just wanted to try to compromise with the coal operators. But the head of the coal operators, George uh, F. Baer, did not want to cooperate whatsoever. He was, because of their, lo their loss in 1900, he was adamant about never conceding to the coal miners again. So, of, of course, a strike had to happen. So, um, in June... Is it June? Yeah. 147,000 miners went on strike. It's May. May. How did they coordinate it where they all agreed that we're all going to go on strike? And weren't there some mines that where the workers just said, no, we're going to keep working? There were some that did that, and the UMWA actually helped to keep some of them open during the strike because we still needed coal. Whether or not the operators were would compromise or not, we needed coal <laughs> to survive at that time. But there were people like Mother Jones and different union organizers that would go from town to town and live with these people and make sure they joined the union so we could all be a united front at that point when the strike happened. And they, most of them were. 
uh, I think eight to 10,000 coal miners went back to their home countries, but a lot more of them still stayed here living on that bare, bare minimum level throughout the six months of the strike. So what was the strike like? I mean, would, would, would they set up picket lines and carry signs or just sit in their houses? Well, they had, the thing with the strike is that they tried to, they had to make sure that the coal mines were closing down. And at that time, operators were hiring non-union scabs, which is what they call them, or blacklegs, who went in and did the work that the miner, for the miners that were on strike. So they would go to the front lines and try to stop the non-unions from going into the mines or try to destroy the mines even, because there was a lot of unskilled, the non-union members, or non-union workers were unskilled. So they didn't know how to work the fire pump, the, the water pumps, or how to control fires. So a lot of destruction and disasters were happening. There was about $2 million worth of damage throughout the six-month period. Uh, and the coal miners are right there trying to keep the non-union workers out. And then the coal operators hired the coal and iron police, which that happened also in 1877. Mm -hmm. Most of them were out of, out of, not from the state. I think New York mm -hmm. was a predominant place. They were given a dollar, uh, was it like a dollar a week or something like that as pay, and they were to protect the mines. And that's where those a lot of clashes happened. But yeah, they, surprisingly, surprisingly, only seven people died throughout the six-month strike. Now the, the miners were living in company-owned houses and mm -hmm. buying from the company store. So what did they do when they were on strike? Did they keep living Some in the houses? Some of them would get caged out yeah. of, of the houses. Yeah. I mean, it would depend. That's why the unions were trying to help yeah. help them to survive, but they barely had enough to help them to survive. Yeah, how, if we were on strike for six months not having any income, I mean, how do they eat? Mostly probably from their own gardens, gardens and cattle, and they, I'm, I'm guessing they rationed out for different families and things and like that. probably a lot of them didn't need. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's hard for us to imagine, you know. I mean, you, you have to do what you would have to do yeah, to get that, by. That one income is what kept this a family of sometimes 9 or 10 or 11 people going, and then suddenly it's not there. What time of year was this strike? From May to October. October. So it was starting to get into the cold when people needed mm, anthracite. That was a concern. Yeah, yes. that was a big concern, and that's why Teddy, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who was our president then, got involved, which was unprecedented. Most presidents are, were like McKinley. They didn't really want to be involved. They wanted it, the strike just to end. But Theodore Roosevelt wanted something, like wanted a compromise of some sort because he knew it was just going to keep going on and we were going to have a coal so shortage if we didn't have a compromise. And winter was coming. So winter they, was coming, yeah. They, they needed to push forward. <laughs> they needed the coal. Well, this would have shut down other mm -hmm. industries across the country. That's mm -hmm. what he realized, yeah. Did mm -hmm. they have to shut down? I mean, the steel it could, could... I don't could think it went that it didn't far. Go. It went 163 days, but it, it didn't go that far yet before they stopped. I think 1873 was still more of a panic than mm -hmm. 1902 was. That's mm -hmm. Roosevelt well, that stopped that because he knew it was going to happen again. And the violence as well because yeah. the, uh, Johnny Mitchell didn't want 1902 to end up as violent as 1877. Mm -hmm. So uh, they, He kept a tight lock on mm -hmm. most of the, the leaders of his, a part of his union to say don't do this. You can do your protests. You can try to get the non-unions to stay out of the mines but don't be violent. But unfortunately, that didn't always work because no. even with the, the Latimer Massacre, that was in, in 1897, um, they were, uh, the United Mine Worker Unions, again, they, it wasn't really, they were on strike, but it wasn't a really well-known strike at the time, but they were just kind of protesting. And they were just walking peacefully, um, a group to Latimer, and um, Luzerne County Sheriffs and the Iron and Coal Police um, disrupted the crowd, shot into them. the crowd, and many people died, and they weren't doing anything but marching peacefully. Mm -hmm. That was right near Hazleton. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they weren't even, they even told them, don't carry sticks, walking sticks, nothing. But it didn't matter. And they still, people still died for no reason. Who, was, who ran the coal and iron police? The, the coal barons. Yeah, yeah, it was all the companies. Whoever the operator, yeah. the operator had hired them independently, I mm -hmm. would think. For and each coal mine, they had no regard for the laboring class mm -hmm. at all. And uh, was there public opinion about the the nineteen oh two strike around the country? Were they for one side or the other? Well, during that, this was the progressive era where things like labor issues became a, a very hot button issue in our country. 
so people started to pay more attention, and media coverage was actually right for the laborers this time. It wasn't for the coal barons, because George Baer, who was the leader of the coal operators during the strike, uh, he wrote a letter saying that he, it was his God-given right to be a coal operator. And that rubbed so many people the wrong way that they went over to Johnny Mitchell, who was a very clean-cut, very polite and courteous man, and just did not want, want anything to do with George Bear, who was considered rude and arrogant. Did you read a lot of newspaper accounts about the 1902 strike? As much as I could. Um, most of it is now there's one really nice book that has a bunch of essays within it that have a lot of uh, excerpts from the newspaper chronicling the time. That was the good thing with 1902. There's a lot less there, than 1877. Yeah, there's a lot more readily available information yeah. <laughs> on 1902. Because there's some newspapers you could tell were clearly pro-minor right. and oh, some yeah. newspapers mm -hmm. were clearly pro. Is that kind of a fun read? It is, because it it's nice to see who was, what, who was on what side, basically. Because you can tell the ones that were against the laborers would talk about how violent they were during 1902, which they weren't that violent. And it was usually of equal violence from both sides. But they always kind of pitted on the laborers of being the more violent people even though half of them probably didn't even have a gun or a weapon with them. Well, even to that extent, in some of the history books, um, the one author, both authors were at the one meeting for when they, when they formed the, the Citizen Corps. And it's the same meeting, but you hear two different sides mm -hmm. of the story, even though they were both at the same meeting. So it's mm -hmm. just funny because everybody's take is different on, on everything. You mentioned John Mitchell a couple times, and he was the head of the... Union? Yep. United was it? Yeah. And how did he, who, who was he? Tell me about him. You wrote about him more than I did. Well, <laughs> well, I always think it's funny because he was born in 1870 in Illinois. Um, he, his parents died when he was young, so he mm -hmm. had foster parents, but um, he was only seven when the strike of 1877 happened, so I always find that kind of funny because he was just a little boy and then he ends up being one of the big labor heroes, you know. Um, but he worked in the bituminous mines in Illinois. And um, he joined um, the uh, Knights of Labor, mm -hmm. but he didn't stay with them because they, they did a lot of unsuccessful strikes. So he wanted to move on, and he joined uh, the United Mine Workers of America. And he really moved up fast in, in that, and uh, so much so that he wanted to come to Pennsylvania to see what was going on because he heard about the poor working conditions and the low wages. And there was a lot more accidents here than mm -hmm. in the bituminous fields. So that's that's how the 1900 strike started. He took his concerns to the to the back to the commission, and he told them, and um, that's when they they did the first strike in 1900. So he was he was a very he comes across from everything I read. He's very passionate at what mm -hmm. he did. Unfortunately, his family suffered from it because he was away more than he was home with the family because he was working to to get better um, working conditions for the, the miners. Um, but he was just very passionate and very criticized at the same time. And Why was he criticized? Well, a lot of people think that he was hobnobbing with the rich and he wasn't in the trenches like Mother Jones mm. was. She was a big one that, was, that would yeah. be outspoken about that. they were friends, because I, I even read letters between the two that you can uh, get on, read online, and I mean, she would call him his comrade. Even for as much as they conflicted, they were still friends. Mm -hmm. You know, they were still working for the same cause. Mm -hmm. They just had different ways of approaching it, you know, and uh, maybe he was hobnobbing. I don't know. He was just more of a, I don't think he was more of a violent, he didn't think he could get things across with violence. It was more politics, politics with him. Yeah, yeah. I think he, had, he just had a different way. Well, what was Mother Jones' approach? The more she, she lived with the miners and ate and drank with them and helped, like she was right in the trenches with them. So she was more, I wouldn't say violent, but she did get arrested more than a few times and once was arrested for, I think it was going to commit murder. <laughs> she had a very colorful life when it came to helping get better working, get better worker Especially conditions. Especially for the kids. She was, oh, yeah, yeah, she was definitely with the children in the silk mills. Mm -hmm. and she and was he, on the, the older side at the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, she lived to be in her 90s, right? 93, something like Somewhat, that? Sometimes yeah. that's a little disputed. She made herself older because she wanted to be Mother Jones appear as a mother. She had the white hair and the black clothing 
and like a, a motherly look to her. So she made her birthday to make herself older at the time. Unusual. <laughs> she started off as a teacher, correct? Yeah, she was a teacher mm -hmm. in a convent. Then she was a dressmaker in Chicago. Uh, and that's during the Great Chicago Fires where she found the Knights of Labor. And that's where it kind of just propelled her into that world. And that became her family. So the 1902 strike was going on for months and Theodore Roosevelt got involved. Did he have any authority to do anything or did he just uh, have to try to persuade people? Uh, well, the operators couldn't say no when he invited he, them. The government was going to take over the mines if yeah. they didn't sit down. His and ultimate threat was, I'm going to send the army in, mm -hmm. and that was going to hurt both sides. Mm -hmm. So they had to find a way to compromise or else. Yeah. <laughs> so. Do you write about a, a big summit meeting that, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. Roosevelt called? and Who was there? Well, there was George Bear and John Mitchell for the miners. Carol, right? Yes, he was he part was of the commission. And um, what's his name? Morgan. J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan was involved mm -hmm. to help with the make the concessions for oh, it. Okay, but, he, was but he wasn't directly. He always seems to be on the outskirts, just trying to nudge the the coal operators to do what he says because he has a lot of he had a lot of stock in the anthracite fields at that time. Did, did John Mitchell was he the only one representing the miners at the meeting? Uh, yes, but also Clarence Darrow, the famed lawyer, was speaking for the miners as well. He that did the closing the, com the committee. The committee, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he has mm -hmm. a chapter in your book. Mm -hmm. well, what should people know about Clarence Darrow? How did he get involved in the Pennsylvania mining? Well, he was more, he was a criminal lawyer, but he also did a lot of the a labor lawyer. He, he represented Eugene Debs um, for the Pullman strike, even though Debs, they, they, he lost. But he somehow became known as a labor lawyer. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that's why Mitchell went and got him to defend the, the, the miners. What would the conversation have been like in the room? Is there any account of who said what to who? Well, we have the closing account of Darrow's. Mm -hmm. um, mm, there were like a thousand written notepads of yeah. what went on at that time. Mm -hmm. And I kind of skimmed through most of them online because I think they have all of them like transcribed if you look yeah, for them the, online. The report. And so then you can the see report. what was going on throughout the entirety of the commission hearing, mm -hmm. which John. took place in the county courthouse yeah, in Scranton. Yeah, county courthouse, mm -hmm. yeah. What was the commission? It was made up of, uh, I forget, Is that I think the it was right commission? I don't know. Carol did the right report yeah, this for was 1902. Yeah, this was the strike. This is the strike, uh, arbitra was it arbitration? Mm. I think yes. that's the right word, mm -hmm. commission. Mm -hmm. And it was mostly made up of people that the coal operators tried to pick which were mostly eminent people that would listen to the coal operators. And John Mitchell, of course, had his reservations about this and told Theodore Roosevelt. So Theodore Roosevelt was able to get, I think, a, a laborer under a different title into the commission hearings and also a bishop. Mm -hmm. So those were the two people for the coal, for the, coal the laborer side, basically. I think it was five or six it people. It was a combination. Yeah. yeah, it was a fair combination. Yeah. So and they the, tried the to. deck wasn't stacked no. in one side of They the tried. They but, tried. But no, it wasn't. Mm -mm. <laughs> what were the recommendations? What did they end up agreeing to? They wanted a 20% wage increase. They wanted to be paid by the tonnage instead of just by the cartload. Um, and they also wanted an eight-hour workday instead of 10 hours, because that's how much they were working at that time. Um, in the end, though, uh, the commission found that while things weren't that were pretty bad for the coal miners at that time they weren't truly terrible enough that they couldn't have a standard american living for what they considered a standard american living so they met midway it was a 10% wage increase the car, it was still done by the cartload instead of the tonnage and they worked 9 hours a day instead of 10 but the union still wasn't yeah, they weren't recognized recognized by the coal operators yeah. I don't remember, I think I read it when the union was recognized, but that was later far later on yeah. than it should have been. Mm -hmm. You say in the book that um, John Mitchell took some criticism for having accepted or uh, mm -hmm. been too easy. Mm -hmm. to Mother Jones said he backed down. <laughs> Mother Jones wanted uh, the coal operators and the laborers to be face to face with each other. Yeah. That's what she wanted, but that was never at that time going to happen. And I think John Mitchell understood that we have to, we have to take what we can while we can for yeah. now. It was like uh, baby. It's almost like baby steps to making it a better place. Plus, again, he didn't want the violence either. Yeah, because that would have it would have made a, the strike longer. There would have been more deaths. There would have been a coal shortage. It probably would have gotten as bad as 1873. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So did, when Johnny, uh, John Mitchell said go back to work, did the miners all go along with it, or were there some yeah, holdouts? Yeah, they all mm -hmm. went back. Mm -hmm. Once, once they at least got something, they went back. Did he have any opposition within the union for hardliners? I think he did. Uh, he eventually ends up leaving in 1908. I think yes. Yeah, 1908. Yeah. He, like I said, he was criticized a lot. For as much as he was loved, he had as much criticism. You know. So um, again, they didn't think he because he didn't get everything that they asked for. You know. But. Uh, I, I'm a fan, so. <laughs> buried in Scranton? Yes, he's buried in Scranton. Cathedral Cemetery. Cathedral Cemetery. And the reason he's buried there is because he figures his, he felt his biggest triumph was in Scranton at, for the, the 1900 <laughs> strike. And that's why he's buried there. And well, we, we just touched briefly on the 1900 strike. What was that about? Uh, well, that was the, what was it, how long did that last? Six, six weeks. Six weeks, yeah. Uh, and they, he did get what he wanted for that. That was because it was the political year, the presidential year, and McKinley wanted to win. So they did, he, had, he felt that was one of his biggest triumphs. So, and it led to 1902. Oh, two. Yeah, they, they always say that was a skirmish just compared to the Battle of 1902. But even but, 1902 was more civilized than any other battle that went on for mm -hmm, labor. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess he had a, a soft place in his heart in Scrant for Scranton because I mean he wasn't from here mm -hmm. you know but yet that's it's where he's buried and we honor him every year still. On uh, what's the date? Uh, it's October 29th because that's when uh, the 1900 strike ended so every October 29th we uh, gather around we have a Johnny Mitchell statue in our courthouse and we gather around and we have a nice little, little ceremony, ceremony mm -hmm. for him. Yeah. Well, why are you a fan of his? Because what he's done for labor. I'm a fan of anybody who, who defends labor. I mean, I know you have to have both. You need the capitalist and the labor for the world to, to continue. You need, But there's got to be a compromise. One doesn't have to be greedy. Um, you can work together. You can always work together. But I think labor built the country. And without us, where would the capitalists be? Mm -hmm. But you could say the same thing, too. Without their money, where would we be? So we need to work together, not against each other. When did the United Mine Workers finally get recognized by the um, mining companies? I believe in the 1830s. 1930. 1930. Sorry, I'm always <laughs> in the 1800s. She's, always in the, She's 1800s. in the 1800s. I'm always in the 1800s. They asked me when I was born. I said 1865. So. <laughs> <laughs> you look did, good. Thank you. Did the strike change things for the miners? I mean, after it was done, did their conditions improve? Did their lives get better? I think so. It did. It not, opened, not, not 100 quickly. percent. Yeah, it, it did open a door for better, like the child labor laws and things like that. It gave us more of a foot, gave more of a foothold to make a, a, a better place for the laborers. And other laboring, laboring unions uh, were oh, recognized. Silk mill workers. Silk mill, yeah. electric. You the know, trolley I mean, car trolley workers car, after, so, after a while. You know, so it led into that too. Could the miners get ahead by being miners? I mean, could they have such a life that they could give their children a better life or was it one cycle after another? I think for them to give their children a better life was to get them an education to get them out of the mines. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think you could really get a better life in the mines. It wasn't like there was room to move up. And that happened you know? more later on. Too. Later on. Because mm -hmm. during the 1800s into the 1900s is what it was send your child into the mines and they were going to stay there for the rest of their life. So they didn't go to school at all? Then. They probably got like a, a little bit of an education, maybe, until they had they, the family needed the money. Mm -hmm. If someone goes up to Scranton now, is there evidence of any of the? What, what do you see? Is the mining industry still going on? Is no. Still no, we stopped in about the 19, Mom. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> we're in 2016, yeah. right? Okay. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> 1950s, it kind of started to drift off um so no there's nothing there's there nothing was like really. a, a prevalence during world war ii and then it just kind of waned off from there yeah the that's the knoxville mine disaster and we could, oil became more of a mm -hmm. a better fuel a better fuel at that time is, is there any evidence of it if you go up to scranton now do you see any evidence that there was a mining industry there if well we have a, the mine tour yeah we have a coal mine tour up in mcdade park, park. Yeah. Uh, right below the Anthracite Heritage Museum is you can go right into the mine and see how dark and dirty and damp and what these men had to work in mm -hmm. and cold. It's always 50 some degrees. I think it's 55. Round, 55 degrees all year 54. round down there. Yeah. 
And yeah. you said you do some work with the Anthracite Museum? Uh, we both do. She's on the board of the Anthracite Heritage Museum. You do the Lackawanna History. I do mostly the Lackawanna, Lackawanna Historical History. Society. Mm -hmm. And is that a museum? Yeah, that's in the Catlin House in downtown Scranton. It's tucked between two university buildings, so you can you can miss it sometimes, but it's a beautiful uh, building built in 1912. If someone goes there, what do they see? They see the architecture of that time period. Um, the architect was Edward Langley. Uh, and if they go inside the house, they'll see different rooms that were in the house at that time because it was a residence. Uh, they do have the coal mining room. And upstairs. they do have a coal mining, yeah, upstairs they have a coal mining room, a, a coal, is it a coal baron's office? Mm -hmm. Which that's always an interesting one because it has a humongous desk and a beautiful topographical map of where coal, the coal veins are in our state. And there's also different rooms like for dresses and for Civil War and for trains and for toys. And you're involved with a different historical I'm society? with the Anthracite uh, Museum. If you, you go there, what do you see? Uh, they have a lot of... Uh, they have a whole 1902 exhibit. Well, yeah, yeah, they have the 18, yeah, 19, <laughs> 1902? 1902 exhibit. <laughs> so you'll see a lot of uh, Johnny Mitchell, and, and they'll tell you the facts about the strike up there. You'll see um, what it was like where the, they changed the, the mm -hmm. miners' changing room because they had to hang their clothes up uh, so the mice and stuff wouldn't get in. They have all the silk uh, looms. They have a yeah, whole so you would room learn of about looms. the silk mill girls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very nice. It's and really you'd see nice. more about the li the different uh, lives of the ethnicities the, living the different in the immigrants area. at the yes. time. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you, you said this is your fourth book, fifth book. That's my actually my sixth, sixth book. Sixth book. <laughs> well, what are some of the other topics of the books? Um, I've done Scranton through time, which is a look about Scranton then and now. Um, I, I've done different sections of the city. I've done Green Ridge and Taylor. Taylor was a big mining town um, and Old Forge and Music. So I tell the history of different sections of the city. If someone has never been to Scranton, why should they go? Hmm. Uh, the history itself. I mean, it's Scranton was really booming at one time. I mean, the saying was uh, not just with theater, but if you could make it in Scranton, you could make it anywhere because people, the train would stop in Scranton before it went to New York, so the theater people would get out. But uh, we have beautiful architecture. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that's that people miss. You need to look up when you're in Scranton because it is. It's. I gorgeous. think they just had a. a a thing for that. Yeah, look up, look up Scranton. Right, and the iron furnaces, I mean, that itself is a gem. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's, we were on the forefront of the Industrial Revolution with that, um, and that's still there. Part of it is still there. Um, but we, we have a lot of um, historical attractions, mm -hmm. and it's just a nice place to come and visit. And people, we have Steamtown mm -hmm. National Park, that's nice in itself. Do you have coal miners in your genealogy? I, well, my grandfather, my great-grandfather was a coal miner. He, he actually died of, of uh, the black lung. Yeah. In the Scranton area? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have another book you're working on? Fingers crossed. <laughs> 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 I'd like to do the, we, we want to do the medical history of Scranton because there's a, a lot of that. And, and it's a lot of it that's not really documented. Yes. The medical history. The, the medical, medical history, history, yes. And, and now that we have the, the Commonwealth Medical College, mm -hmm there. I mean, there's just so much. We have that. We have three different hospitals yeah. right in the city. There's, there's so much history. There is a lot of it. So uh, we won't know until next week, but fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, good luck with that one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We've been speaking with Margot Azzarelli and Marnie Azzarelli. They are the authors of this book, Labor Unrest in Scranton. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.